you know, would you rather be a Bible church or a typically American church? Answer, Bible church. Yes. And in the American church, they usually have, try to have an all-star preacher that does most, almost all the preaching. And once in a while, if he's sick or got, gets in a motorcycle crash or something, they say, have a sub. But, you know, in the Bible, in the, in the church at Antioch, which is, I just love to study the different churches in the New Testament, there, are, there, were, there were many teachers and prophets. And, you know, if you were to have a family dinner and you were looking forward to all kinds of good food there, and all that was there was mashed potatoes. You'd enjoy the mashed potatoes. Sure, they'd be great. But wouldn't you feel like something was missing? I know I would. We need more than just one preacher in a congregation to be a Bible church. And there's a strength to having a banquet of different uh, truth. Truth through personalities is how the truth comes to us in preaching. And I'm so, so grateful that New Song Church has embraced the biblical theology that there are many leaders, many prophets, many teachers, and we have an amazingly strong team that serves up a potluck that is just beautiful. David Mickelson will be sharing today, and it won't be mashed potatoes. Enjoy him. Enjoy the word of God. Hear from God today. David. I actually really like mashed potatoes if there's gravy. So, I want to compliment Misty and Ashley on coming up here and just standing there looking so patient. You know, he called you up right at the beginning and he gave all the announcements. And you guys just stood there looking happy. And I should just have you guys come back up and stand here for the sermon. You can just... No. I don't know if you would do that. Or open your Bibles to Exodus 20 and maybe put a finger in Exodus 33 as well. So before I get to those verses, though, I have an important story I need to relate to you. This was messaged to me from a friend. Oh, my goodness, I was robbed at the grocery store today. After my hands stopped trembling, I managed to call the police. They were quick to respond and managed to calm me down. My money was gone. The police asked me if I knew who did it. I said, yeah, it was register number four. <laughs> High prices. I bought a little bag of air today. The company that made it was kind enough to put some potato chips in it as well. <laughs> I don't mean to brag, but I finished a diet today in three hours and 14 minutes. It's a new record. <laughs> the main function of your little toe is to make sure all the furniture in the house is in the right place. <laughs> this one's in poor taste. If you suck while playing the trumpet, that's probably why. Dad, the spider bit me. Am I going to become Spider-Man? No, son, this is Australia. You're going to die. Okay, one more. I met a woman outside the mall crying. She had lost $200. So, being the good person that I am, I gave her $40 out of the 200 that I found earlier. <laughs> Exodus 20:18. This is uh, the context. The children of Israel have escaped from slavery, and now they're at Mount Sinai, and the Lord's presence is hovering over the mountain. So it says, When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sounding of the ram's horn, and the mountain enveloped in smoke, they trembled and stood at a distance. Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, they said to Moses. 
but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Now, let's contrast that attitude towards God with Moses in Exodus 33. Same mountain, same God. Verse 15 of Exodus 33. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. What's going on here? Do you see a little bit of a difference between the attitude of the two million Israelites and the one man, Moses? Is there a slight different perspective on God? I heard a very confident yes from Somebody in the audience. Good job. (laughs) Moses was seeking after the presence of God, and the rest of them wanted to keep him as far back as they could. Now, lest you think this is a healthy fear of God, consider that in just 40 days from that moment, at the same mountain, still in view of the presence of God, the glory cloud was still over the mountain. They could see him right there. The Israelites fashioned a golden calf as an idol and prostituted themselves before it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone with a healthy view, a healthy fear, a godly fear, would build an idol right there with God in view and then prostitute themselves before that idol. Even the demons fear God, it says, and tremble. It doesn't say they fear God. It says they believe he's powerful and they tremble. So they don't have a godly fear either. And this was that kind of fear. It was a fear that wanted to keep God away, but it wasn't like a healthy respect for God. You know, a person who believes in God's power But not his goodness is repelled by him. You go closer to the mountain, they said to Moses. You go closer, we'll stay back here. I don't want to get any closer to this God. And that's the carnal mind. The carnal mind is repelled by him, even when it believes he's God. The man or woman who believes in his power, but not his goodness, will fall into this trap. It's the same trap that they fell into, and it's actually the same trap as the enemy, It's rebellion. They worship the golden calf. Satan worships himself. The worship of the golden calf, which is a god they fashioned and they could control and they could keep right there and it wasn't going to do anything unexpected and it wasn't going to do anything that they thought, "That's, that's not what we want you to do. It just sat there. It was a god they could manage. It was a manageable god. And it's a form of worshiping yourself, really, when your god is just right there and you're in control of it. It's the same sin the the devil committed. You know, it's not enough to believe God is powerful. Plenty of people believe God is powerful. The demons believe God is powerful. You have to believe that he's good. I want you to take note of the imagery the Bible gives us. Two million people in the desert, all of them believe God is powerful, but only one is convinced of his goodness. And the ones that aren't, the other 1,999,999, They fall into idolatry. One moves forward and sees the glory of God and talks with God face to face. You notice that there's no middle ground here. You're either moving up to him or you're falling back into idolatry. And it all depends on who you think he is. And I've quoted A.W. Tozer before, one of my favorite quotes. He said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Moses thought God was good and that separated him from the crowd. 
You know, when God first called Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, you may remember, Moses was unwilling. He had his excuses. They won't listen to me. Lord, I stutter. And you can just imagine what's going on in his mind. He had just left that place because they were trying to kill him. Now you're going to send him back? And he argued with God. Have you ever tried to argue with God? Has it ever worked? God answered him patiently. Each thing he said, God's answer was, I will be with you. And the problem with arguing God is he can always just say, I'll be with you. And then he wins the argument. Just don't try. And so eventually Moses ran out of excuses. This is Exodus 3 and 4. But he finally just said, Lord, send somebody else. So even without excuses, he didn't trust the Lord yet. But God called him anyway. Isn't that interesting? God knew what he was going to do, and God called him anyway. You know, I think God saw in Moses something that we don't see in any of the other two million people of that generation. We do see it in other generations, but in that generation, even with Aaron and Miriam, we don't see what we see in Moses, which is that Moses was willing to learn of his goodness and as a result to learn to trust him. God saw in Moses a man who would believe in his goodness and therefore to completely trust him no matter what God told him to do. So here's what's interesting to me is that the lesson that Moses was able to learn of God's goodness, it was available for all of them. What did Moses see? He saw the plagues. He saw the Red Sea parted. He saw the provision in the desert. And he learned his lesson. I can trust this God. Well, the other two million saw the same things. Moses took it all in. Now, I won't say it's impossible because we're talking about God here, but it, it is hard for God to work with us if we don't completely trust him. We place limits on him when we aren't fully persuaded of his goodness. We throw up roadblocks to our destiny when we aren't fully persuaded that we can trust him. You know, God's not throwing any roadblocks in front of you. And God's not even letting the devil throw any roadblocks in front of you. Sure, he lets the devil bluff and bluster and huff and puff, but that's all he lets the devil do. The only one who can really hinder our destiny is ourself. We step into our full potential when we learn of him, when we learn of his goodness and therefore are enabled to trust him. You know, you trust what you know is good. If there's a bridge across a chasm... You can't walk that path without fear if you're pretty sure it's, it's not a good bridge. Only when you're sure it's a good bridge, you can walk that path boldly and fearlessly. Is any of this making any sense? God was the bridge in that analogy. I don't know if you got that. <laughs> the biggest obstacle holding back many in the evangelical church is that not doubts about his power. We know he can do it if he wants to. What's blocking so many people from climbing that awesome mountain like Moses did isn't doubts about his power. I mean, think about it. Who can doubt his power? Look at the world he created. Look at the miracle stories we hear about. People believe stories about someone else's miracle easily. But will he do it for me? Will he really be trustworthy for me? Oh, I don't know if I can believe that. It's strange because it doesn't make any sense, but it's an emotional thing that's going on. Here's a measuring rod you can rely on. People who are fully persuaded of his goodness are excited to be alive. And God wants you to be excited to be alive. When I'm saying all this, it's not to make anybody feel bad. It's to make you feel hope that you can have that, by the way. People who know that God is good wake up excited 
and they serve him with enthusiasm. Life is never a drudgery for the one who knows the beautiful secret at the heart of our universe is that we have a good God. It doesn't mean there's not drudgery doing the dishes. You know, a lot of work that we have to do is drudgery. I hate raking leaves. I have two huge oak trees, one in the front, one in the back. I had to rake so many leaves this fall, you wouldn't believe it. And it was horrible. But my life was never a drudgery. There was drudgery work, but I was still excited to be alive because I know God is good. This is a wonderful place to be, to be alive here. It's a wonderful place to be. And if, you are, if you're in Christ, it's only getting better for you forever. I want you to have this. I want to see the enemy depressed about you. I don't want to see you depressed. I want to see the enemy depressed about you because, yeah, because he has no hold on your emotions. That's what depresses him. If you're joyful, he's depressed. I love knowing that my joy is making the devil and his minions depressed. I take an unseemly pleasure in making the devil wish he was capable of swallowing a Prozac pill. I want your joy to make him even more depressed. And your joy does not come through your circumstances. I hope that you know that. Oh, if only my circumstances would change, then I would be joyful. Wrong. If you're not joyful now, you won't be joyful in different circumstances. The complaining heart will always find something to complain about. Lord, these Egyptians are coming after us. God parts the Red Sea and it comes down on the Egyptians. Lord, we don't have any water. God provides water from the rock. Lord, we don't have any bread. Bread comes down from heaven. Lord, we don't have any meat. Millions of quail blow in. And then they still kept complaining. There was nothing he was going to do that would stop them from complaining unless they changed their hearts. And even in the church, people can do that. But the one who knows he is good will have joy even amidst hardship. And we can have that right now. So what about Moses? Why did Moses have this revelation when the other two million didn't have it? How can we be like Moses and not like the other two million, right? That's the big question here. So I want to look at a couple things about Moses that make him stand out that we can do today. One, this guy was humble. Moses was humble. Numbers 12.3, now Moses was a very humble man. Told you. You didn't believe me? More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, if the Hebrew tradition that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible is true, then Moses had to write that about himself. I can just imagine Moses dictating to Joshua. Now, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Joshua's writing, looks up. Okay. What does humility have to do with being fully persuaded of God's goodness? Well, you know, pride elevates its own perspective over and against God's. When God tells us something and we say, I know that you say that, but I say this, that's pride. Sometimes inviting in a truth that God gives us is a bit like moving a grand piano into the house. God, I love this grand piano you're giving me, but it doesn't fit through my front door. God, I can't fit this new revelation through my front door. You know, if God has told you something that you need to move into your house, and it won't budge through the door. Humility is the grease that allows it to get through. So for example, God tells you, son, daughter, my child, I am good, and I have wonderful things for you, chiefly myself, 
but others too. And we say, Father, Lord, I hear you saying that you're good, but what about that thing that you allowed? Hmm. If you're good, why did you allow that? And God says, son, daughter, my child, I allowed that because I'm capable of turning that to the good. So good that when you see all I do through it, you will someday rejoice that I allowed that. Our pride says, I don't agree that you could ever turn that to the good, and I'm not really sure that you're good. Oftentimes we don't articulate that to him, but it's there. It's it's a feeling. Humility says, okay, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your ways than my ways and your thoughts than my thoughts. I don't see how that thing could turn to the good, but I trust you. It takes humility. Moses' humility enabled him to be persuaded of God's goodness when all the others, two million strong, could only see things to complain about. I know I seem like I must be the humblest man in the church. And you might think, well, you have good reason to be humble. Oh, come on. There we go. Thank you, Melody. Believe it or not, when God tells me something, I can sometimes struggle with pride. The pride that says, I know what I'm talking about, God. I can't believe you just said that. Did you hear what you said, Lord? How could that be? That's completely different than my perspective. Didn't you know what I thought about that before you said that? That's when God just gets silent and looks at you. He looks at you. He can communicate volumes with his silences. If you ask God a question and he's silent, sometimes it's because he's already given you the answer and you didn't believe him the first time. And it's as if he's saying to you or to me, come, let's reason together. You know, that's a, that's a verse in Isaiah. Come, let's reason together. God says that to us. He gave you a reason so that you would reason. And this is what he says. Let's start with what you know. What do you know? And I say, well, I know what you just said, but it didn't make any sense. He says, okay, you know what I just said, okay? Let's, let's start there. So, who's God, me or you? You are. So, who's smarter, me or you? You are. So, who's right, me or you? I'm right! <laughs> David, let's start back at the beginning. Who's God, me or you? You are. Who's smarter, you are. So, who's right? You are. And then he always makes me say the thing. I have to say it out loud. Okay, and I have to declare it. You know there's amazing power in declaring something that God has has told you? It takes humility, though, because you have to admit that you were wrong and he was right. And the great thing about trying to believe him. People say, I'm going to try to believe him. Oftentimes we try to do something and then we fail. But when you try to believe him, if you really try, anything he says has a power in it that enables you to believe. So there really is no trying to believe. There's just believing. If you try to believe, then you believe. If you genuinely are trying. So, we're all responsible for our own beliefs. And therefore, we're all responsible for our own emotions. Because your emotions come from your beliefs. All right, I'm going to switch gears here. The reverse position to those who believe in God's goodness, but not his power. Believe it or not, there are some people who believe in his goodness. They say they do, at least. But not his power. And so I want to look at that real fast, because we've been looking at people who believe in his power, but not his goodness. And this is much more common outside of the evangelical church. In the media, 
you often hear about Jesus as a good man. They have no trouble believing Jesus was a good man, but they don't really believe he's God. So they believe he was good, but they don't believe he's powerful. My dad was raised in a theologically liberal church, and he remembers learning that Jesus was just a good man. And we're saved by trying to follow his example. He helps us to be good through his example. And he was 16 before he heard the gospel, that we're saved by faith in what he did for us on the cross. Never heard that until he was 16, when they went to church every week. Try to be good like Jesus was. What happens when you fail? I don't know. Try harder? You know, Paul says in the last days, many will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And there's a, there's a chapter in Colossians, chapter 2, where, where he's talking to them about, they're trying to follow all these human traditions and all these human rules. And there's much of that in the world today. Jesus has become a sort of mascot in the world. Many will tell you what Jesus would say if he were here today. And the words they put in his mouth always happen to be exactly what they already think anyway. Isn't that funny how that works out that way? If Jesus were here today, he would... And then it's always the same thing they think that, they, that should happen anyway. Jesus would be a member of this political party. Jesus would follow this political movement. Jesus would drive an electric car. Jesus' favorite creamer would be pumpkin spice. Jesus would have liked my Instagram post. Why didn't you? You know, this Jesus is kind of fashioned in their own image. Kind of reminds me of an idol. It's the same spirit as the golden calf, a God we can control. And Paul says such a philosophy has the semblance of wisdom but lacks any power to restrain the sensual indulgence. It's from Colossians 2. If you look at theologically liberal denominations that only teach of his goodness but not his power, like clockwork, today they all encourage people in rebellious lifestyles and sexually sinful behavior in the name of being loving. There's no restraint on the sensual indulgence. Huh, it's funny. It's almost as if Paul knew what he was talking about. That's weird how that works. You know, love never requires you to encourage people in behavior which the Bible says will lead them to damnation. That's not love. It might be easy. It might be the easy road, but it's not loving. Now, I'm not saying get on Facebook and start condemning whole groups of people because that's not going to do any good. But what I am saying is, in your own life, hold fast to what the Scripture teaches. And in love and in genuine faith, Stick to biblical principles, especially in your own choices. And when people see your faith and your love and your godliness, many will be saved through your example. Be fully persuaded of his goodness, but also be fully persuaded of his power. Now, I wasn't even going to talk much about Moses, except as a prologue, so I don't know how that happened. But I do need to finish my Moses talk because there was one other thing that Moses did that separated him from that crowd, and that was he was hungry to know God. Remember what we just read, Exodus 33. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. That was verse 13. Verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I don't even want to go if you're not going to come with us. Verse 18, now show me your glory. The man would not take no for an answer. You know, if God says no to a prayer, it's because he has a better yes for you in mind. If your prayer is already for the best thing, he will always say yes. One prayer he will always say yes to is for more revelation of him. Because you're praying for the best thing when you ask for that. 
When you pray like Moses from the bottom of your heart, show me your glory, give me your presence, teach me to know you, if you mean it, if you're not holding back in some way, some unforgiveness, some, something you're holding on to that's a rebellious behavior, something that you're not letting go of, if you mean it, he will always answer that prayer, starting right away. So as a result of Moses' determination to know God, he was fully persuaded of God's goodness. He insisted on knowing him, and he was able to be used in amazing ways that the other two million fell short of. Now, who do you want to be like? Okay, well, I need to hurry up here. What I wanted to talk about, (laughs) this is going to be fast, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love this story. Uh, This is Daniel 3, if you want to find that. And you know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar has made an image of gold 90 feet high. And he summoned all his officials and he said, Hey, everybody, hope you're having a good day. I'm going to need you to go ahead and bow down to this idol. Or, sorry, I'm going to have to throw you in this golden furnace, in this, in this fiery furnace. So, kind of hope that you just go ahead and bow down. Otherwise, it's going to get kind of awkward. And all of his officials bowed down, except for three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who remained standing. Now, there was a huge crowd here. It was so big that at first the king didn't even notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing. That's how many hundreds or maybe thousands of people were were there. But there were people watching them. I suspect reading between the lines that someone or someones convinced Nebuchadnezzar to erect this statue, specifically to put the Jews in his service in an untenable position. Because when you read Daniel 6, they did the same thing to Daniel. They said... Make it, make it so you can't pray to the Hebrew God. And then they knew he was going to pray. Just so they could throw him to the lion's den. So it was a trap. And I don't think King Nebuchadnezzar was in on it. Because he was caught off guard and genuinely surprised when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down. And he gave them a, a second chance. Okay, guys, please just bow down so that we can move on. I don't want to have to kill you. But they wouldn't bow down. And so it says he was outraged. And he ordered them to be thrown into the fire. But this is what they said to him. This is Daniel three sixteen. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Power. And he will rescue us from your hand. Goodness. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The answer they gave is so powerful. We know our God can save us from the fiery furnace, we believe that he will, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, we will not bow down to your gods. Being fully persuaded of God's goodness is not contingent or conditional on our expected outcome. They didn't say, he's good if he saves us, but if he doesn't, boy, he's not good. They weren't going to bow down no matter what. Sometimes Christians treat God this way. Lord, I'll believe that you're good if you do what I would have done if I was God. If you do what I think you should do, then you're good. But if you don't, oh, then you're in trouble. You're not a good God in that case. You know, I like what C.S. Lewis said about Aslan is the Jesus figure in Narnia. He's a lion. And he's, he has them say of Aslan, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. You know, it's dangerous to try to control God. Just trust that he's good and let him be himself. we don't want our God to be manageable and under our eye and to only be an image created in our image we want him to be God you know God wasn't going to let them burn and he didn't 
Nebuchadnezzar saw the miracle. He saw the fourth man in the fire, remember? And he said, I see one walking among them who looks like the Son of God. And when they came out, he repented and he said, to everybody here, I want you to know, honor the Hebrew God and his name will be worshipped throughout our land. And if you don't, I'll cut you up into little pieces. (laughs) So whatever you can say about Nebuchadnezzar, he had flair, didn't he? Okay. So that's what happened with that one. Because of their faithfulness, the worship of God spread throughout the empire. Now I want to look at a different example where the exact opposite thing happens. And we'll see if God could turn that to the good. Because in the story of Stephen, in that story, the faithful witness did die. And the the rulers did not repent. So let's look at that. It tells us in Acts 6, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So it's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God backed him up with miracles. And all who saw him ought to have known that God was with him. Now the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he repented. But what did the religious leaders in Stephen's case do? When they saw his miracles, they wanted to kill him even harder. The exact opposite reaction. They wanted to stone him even more, and they did. The Lord let it happen. They hardened their hearts, and they stoned him. And it says what happened after that, because there was a result in Acts from that event. It doesn't, the story doesn't end with Stephen being stoned. Now, Stephen told them as they were killing him the following words. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that reminds me forcibly of Nebuchadnezzar saying, I see a fourth man in the flames who looks like the Son of God. So I want you to take note that God was with Stephen as he transitioned into glory, just as much as he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were saved. Stephen's death was glorious, and Jesus was with him in that. And what was the aftermath of Stephen's death? Acts 8.1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. On all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Jerusalem. God, uh, sorry, throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. What happened here? As a result of Stephen's example, the gospel, which had previously been contained right in Jerusalem, spread to all the surrounding region. People started rejoicing. People started getting delivered. People started getting saved. And it was all as a result of the persecution of Stephen. Now, Saul, Paul, was trying to destroy the church, but what happened there? The Lord confronted him. And Saul, slash Paul, repented so fervently that he dedicated his life to building the church of God. So what can we say? Let's look at these two cases where the exact opposite thing happened. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God did a miracle. The king repented, and the worship of God spread throughout the world. In the case of Stephen, the rulers, sorry, God did a miracle. The rulers did not repent, and the gospel spread anyway. In both cases, the worship of God spread. So no matter what 
choice the king or the rulers made. God was going to turn that to the good. And in the case of the people who lived, Jesus was with them. In the case of Stephen, Jesus was with him as well. I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So you see, whatever happens, God's goodness will ultimately prevail. We never base our faith in his goodness on the outcome playing out as we think it ought to or as we expect it to. What do we base our faith in his goodness on? Who he is. We always base our faith in his goodness on who he is. And we let the outcomes play out according to that. It might be the exact opposite of what you expect, but it's going to be good. You know, the ancients believed fortune was a wheel. That's where the wheel of fortune came from. They actually believed that. It's not a joke. He, they believed fortune was a wheel. They said, sometimes that wheel is going to roll in your favor. Sometimes it's going to roll back right over you. Bad or good. But we believe our God is a rock. He never changes. He's always good. And he's always powerful. All the time. Amen? Now, I want, I want to pray for you because I've gotten really good um, revelation of his goodness. And it's a supernatural revelation that I have. And it's bringing me so much joy right now. And I'm just enjoying life so much, no matter what happens. It's, I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to, to believe he's good. So I'm going to pray for that revelation for you because I want you to have that. And I know that there's a temptation even in the church to feel hopelessness and despair and depression. Those are all forms of hopelessness. But we're commanded to hope. And if he, he commands us to hope, it's because we can. So I want you to have this hope that will deliver you from any heaviness of spirit. So just be in a receiving mode right now if you want to put your hands out. Thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your goodness that you've given me. And I pray that today, even if I messed up my sermon and it wasn't very good, I pray you will speak to each person here. I pray that you will give them revelation right now, if you haven't already, of your goodness. I pray for a word of knowledge for each sheep here who can hear your voice, and that's all of them, of your goodness. Download it right into their brains, into their hearts right now. Lift off any heavy burden of hopelessness or despair or depression. No matter what their circumstances are, let them see your face. Right now, Jesus, pour it in. I'm just going to be silent for a minute and let God look at you. Pour in yourself to each person here today. Fill them up with the buoyancy of hope. And we do pray for those circumstances to change too. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. And Pastor Jeremiah is going to come out and close this down. Wow, what a great day in God. Amen, amen. Dedicating a new one to great worship, great release of his word. And uh, dear Heavenly Father, just release an impartation of humility in each of our lives. Grease us up, God. Grease us up. Let that revelation enter our lives and our hearts. In your name, amen. Each of you be blessed today as you go. If you need additional prayer, we ask that our ministry team come on up and uh, they'd be ready to pray with you. Uh, if you want someone else to just partner with you and agreeing with what God has for you in that release. And we just thank you. Everyone at home, be blessed. Enjoy your week.
Have a great day.